0: Coming up this week on Sporting Journal Radio. Uh,
1: because none of our WMAs are identical to any other, and what we try to do is customize
2: um, the the grazing or the haying. You know, when that water starts getting chillier, that jig bite starts kicking in pretty darn good, and that's the main way. Who pays for all that fencing,
0: and who puts that all in? Is that then, uh, is that the rancher, the farmer? I fish. I hunt and always will. Broadcasting from the Alclair Outdoor Studios. Presented by OnX. Know where you stand with (laughs) OnX. We're not just a radio show anymore. This is Sporting Journal Radio. That's right. Welcome to the show. My name is Brett Amundsen. Thank you for tuning in on the network on this radio station right here by downloading the podcast at sportingjournalradio.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or maybe subscribing to our YouTube channel. Thank you very much. Dan Amundsen is with us as always. What's up, Dan?
3: What's up? I don't know what to say. I had something (laughs) planned, but you didn't set it up right. So we'll save that for another reason. That's Dan Amundsen right over there. How are you doing, Dan? I'm greater than the sun. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> well, you got to tell me you need a little setup it's sometimes. It's not as
3: good if it's not organic. It's got to come up organically.
0: All right, David, how would you like me to introduce
3: you? This a normal way,
0: I guess. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, if you'd actually done it the normal way, it would have been organic. Well, I'm trying
0: not to do the same thing every time. That's. it has got to change it up every once
3: in <laughs> a while, Dan. You don't.
0: Keep you on your toes. All right. David Eckhart, what's happening? not too much all right very nice uh you did some deer hunting bow hunting uh in the dakotas we're going to ask you how that went coming up we'll talk about our dove opener experience also our minnesota early teal opener if you got out for geese or teal or doves we'd love to see the pictures Uh, share them, comment below, or put them on our social media pages. We'd appreciate it. Or just tell us what you think about the seasons. If it was too hot, if you don't like early teal, if you like early teal, we'd like to hear your opinions on that. Comment below on that. We also have Greg Hoke with us. So uh, a couple weeks ago or last week, I don't even remember what show it was now. We talked about a viral video going around on social media about a guy on a WMA and not happy with the fact that there was cattle grazing on it, new cattle fencing up around it. So we wanted to get to the bottom and figure out what what is the emergency hang and grazing and conservation grazing what happens in minnesota so greg hoke is going to join us he's the prairie habitat supervisor with the minnesota department of natural resources he'll break down that and we'll talk about prairie chickens and um timber doodles and some other some other birds around minnesota coming up with greg uh in just a little bit also joe henry will give us the latest from lake of the woods but first dan who are the sponsors this. Are you ready? Is Live okay?
3: Target. Just <laughs> shut up. Live Target. Match the hatch at LiveTargetLures.com this summer. Lake of the Woods Tourism. Lake of the Woods is the walleye capital. Plan a trip for this uh, fall, summer, or winter. It's September, Dan. It's still summer. Plan a trip at lake of the woods, Mn.com, Hayville Heights Campground and Resort at Devil's Lake. Book a trip to Devil's Lake, North Dakota at Heights.com Otter Tail Lakes Country. Find your inner otter at OtterTailLakesCountry.com. And Prairie Sportsman. We have a new season coming up this winter. Watch episodes anytime at the Prairie Sportsman YouTube channel.
0: Some really cool stuff coming up. Uh, for Prairie Sportsmen. In fact, we're going to be filming uh, a fishing event in October down on the Mississippi River. I, I apparently, you know, it's, sometimes I feel like Southeast Minnesota isn't a part of Minnesota. It seems like, or at least for us, where we are. You don't hear about things down there as often. It's a beautiful part of the state. Uh, Hunting obviously is is very good and fishing on the river is is really good. And uh, there's a big bass tournament. Normally takes place, what, in June? May, May?
3: early May. Yeah, it's like the week before inland fishing opener. and not this year
0: Fundra yeah it was flooded
3: yeah this year they canceled there. it because of high water which is probably a smart move i wouldn't want it i was not looking forward to being on the river in flood conditions i know there were some yeah. other tournaments i think held a little further down river that weekend that went on without a hitch but i think smart move to move it to fall and it's gonna be gorgeous down there now this time of year
0: oh yeah i i honestly can't wait um but it is a fundraiser for saint saint jude's so we are going to be uh, telling you more about that in the next couple of weeks not only on this show but we'll be filming it for prairie Sportsman coming up during the new season starting in january i nominated for some more emmys this year Uh, pioneer pbs nominated for 22 upper midwest emmy awards For the show's uh, compass postcards and your favorite outdoor show prairie sportsman also my favorite i'm a little biased though (laughs) that's right um david it was one billion degrees while we were out there uh dove and teal hunting this weekend you were sitting in a tree stand or uh uh, crawling through a bean field. Oh, oh, I did see that. You did send one
4: snap. So you were actually crawling through the bean field. Yeah. That's where all the deer wanted to be. How'd that, so. how'd that go? I uh, got real close. I had four different, pretty nice bucks. Um, all at different points under 60 yards, a couple, uh, probably under 20, but just didn't, didn't make it happen but I was shaking, <laughs> man.
0: Well, that's a problem. Like I, I understand how you could, you could crawl enough through a bean field to get close to deer out there, but trying to draw back a bow and not get busted without some sort of way to cover yourself up. Cause I'd assume once you popped up and drew your bow back, you probably bumped them if you got to that far anyway.
4: Um, yeah, I crawled in on some and some were just feeding. So they'd put their head down. So there would have been an opportunity to draw back while their head was down. Just The way the the land was set up, the contours and, Oh, you could have got on them. Yeah, but it just, they were walking away from me or would get out too far before I had a chance to draw back. The last one got spooked by a truck on the road. So what nerve of that truck guy (laughs) driving that truck? How dare that guy
0: do his job? Don't you see me crawling through this bean field? (laughs) I started three hours ago. Yeah, I made it 50 yards. Have you ever done that before?
4: Not in a bean field like that, no.
0: I've always wanted to do the cornfield walk, standing corn on a real windy day. Yeah. With my bow.
4: Have you ever done that before? I've never done it. I've always wanted to, just like you, but it it just never has worked out for me. Yeah. I had
0: one time where it was a perfect setup, there was a nice buck and I could see him walking on, you know, the up, the upwind side of the cornfield and I was like, oh, I could easily sneak in there and sneak in <laughs> on him, but
4: I had I, some place to I be. I do regret taking the knee pads out of my pants though, <laughs> man, my knees were sore for like two days. <laughs> so many jokes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we. Uh, we dove hunted on Friday, and we were set up in on the edge of standing corn, so we were sitting in the standing corn, uh, looking over a part that had been dug already. And I had, I think I parked the truck, and as I was on my way back, it was legal shooting time, and some doves were already coming in, Dan and Wade were out there hunting, and some doves were already coming in, so I ducked down on the edge of the corn real quick, right into these tiny little, they're like sand burrs almost, these yep. tiny little birds, like 10 of them right on the right on my (laughs) kneecap immediately just like center punched my knee with these burrs and then all day i was just picking them off my legs for the rest of the day the worst um but dove hunting dove hunting wasn't terrible dan you got to shoot a couple doves out there
3: i had a great time yeah it was easy we just that's what i love about dove hunting it's so you can make it so easy and you can sit there in shorts and a tank top if you want i didn't i sat there in pants and a t-shirt or whatever we just sat in some sand and corn and Whacked some doves, missed some doves, ate some doves, and it was easy. We woke up, I don't know, 5.30. We were in the field by 5.45. That's <laughs> it <was> great. <laughs> it's yeah. such a long drive. We were shooting birds by 6.30 whatever. So it was a great time. I love it because you can just sit there and talk to whoever you're with and not have to be super camoed, super quiet, and just hang out. You shoot some birds, great. If you don't, whatever. Who cares? They're doves. It's not a big deal. Yeah,
0: and I didn't care if we shot, you know, a full limit. Obviously, uh, I just wanted to shoot some to put on the grill, uh, get the get the shotgun warmed up, get get uh, tiny some retrieves, and uh, get you guys shooting some birds. Get your brother shoot my brother, your dad shooting wow. some birds. I know we do that all the time. <laughs> um, but the best part I think about that teal hunt, Dan, is we were we weren't far from an area where or the dove hunt. The best part of that dove hunt is we were near an area where we might teal hunt, but hadn't scouted too much. And as we were sitting there watching doves like, oh, there's a flock of teal. (laughs) Oh, there's another flock of teal. Maybe we should teal hunt tomorrow. So that's what we did. And it, uh. It, it there was a, there was more ducks around than i was expecting there to be
3: you know it seems with ducks in a slew that's always how it is right you'll scout it like ah there's like 30 in there and then you show up the next morning and you're like whoa there's 200 all of a sudden in the decoys in the morning so you almost kind of count for that but yeah we saw a lot of ducks and you know the teal teal season you can't shoot and we talked about this in our latest fish hunt forever youtube video it's out now um but teal season right you can't shoot till sunrise and we got there a half hour before. So we got a great show and a lot of ducks, we we could have shot a lot of ducks. We might have had a, a nice quick limit if we could have shot right at sunrise or a half hour before. But waiting till sunrise, we got a quick show. And then like Teal, the flight was kind of over. So we picked away at a few and shot a lot of ducks, but not what it could have been. Um, but there were a ton of birds back there. Yeah, it was,
0: it fun. was, it was wild. and We wanted to be out there before the half hour before because we knew teal get into the spread early so we wanted to try to be in there in case you know they'd still be in there when legal shooting time came and water swatting to no matter how you look at water swatting it's a lot more acceptable these days excuse me than it used to be and particularly during the early teal season when identification is so important that a lot of times we'll let the teal land or let them swim into the decoys because that happens too but are you okay over excuse there? excuse me <laughs> recording this at lunchtime is probably a bad idea so we uh w- we shoot some of the birds on the water or let them get in and then jump them and shoot them off off the off the water as they get up whatever the case may be um so we wanted to get in there early and i went and parked the truck and you two were in the blind already and as i was walking up to the blind i could hear the band there? you two the band was in the blind the band was in the blind yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I was walking up and I could hear teal in the decoys. So I was like, well, I don't want to walk into the blind and bust these birds out so these guys can shoot them. So I was sitting there waiting and all of a sudden like another flock of birds showed up and landed. And then all of a sudden there's about 15 minutes to go before legal shooting time. And I heard just a heavy, heavy barrage from, I don't know, a mile or two south of us. And I was like, huh, it's not legal shooting time for ducks yet. They could have been shooting geese. They could have been shooting doves but right after that a flock of about 40 teal showed up so maybe they're related maybe not but i didn't get to see them dan you got to see them i just heard it and the first thing i heard was the air like the air of a 40 40 plus strong group of teal flying you hear them cut the air when they come over and i get they were so low to the water i couldn't see them over the cattails and i heard them come through and then you hear the splash down and the wings as they land it sounded cool how did it look?
3: So cool. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to I didn't, say? I didn't know if Garbage, you were going to ex- expand on that. <laughs> well, I was. And then you just started to laugh. <laughs> Go so ahead. So anyways, if I can continue. Yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool. Cool story, bro. Cool. Uh, who's that guy? I don't know. Uh,
0: it, was, uh, it was good though. We had, a, we had a fun time out there. And then we did just throw the doves and the teal on the grill. And I uh, had a really nice meal and and we did film it uh, for the Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel. So if you want to see our early Minnesota teal opener uh, vlog video, go to the Fish Hunt Forever YouTube channel to watch that right now. And David, that night, I think it was Sunday night, Sunday night or Monday night, I don't remember, some point over the weekend, all of a sudden my trail cameras started going off. I'm like, oh, that's a new buck. That's a new buck. Well, that's a bigger buck than I've seen. And... I don't know if it was all the activity, like all the teal hunters going into the sloughs or the dove hunters going into the fields. I don't know if that got the deer moving around. Because, I mean, it was 100 degrees. You wouldn't think there'd be a ton of movement. Right. I know it's September, so the the, the bucks are going to start to move a little bit anyway. But I think it had to be a lot of that hunter activity kind of pushing them out of their home areas.
4: I don't know. Because I had, I had the same thing. I had deer in my food plots all night and they're starting to drop velvet and uh the the last night that I had a lot of deer um a lot of bigger bucks the bucks I've been watching and they were sparring you could see them oh cool kind of sparring I'm excited to go pull that card and look at the videos just to see if they were just touching horns or if they were actually kind of fighting a little bit or what's going on there but I suppose it's getting to be that time of year where they're trying to figure out who's the strongest and yeah who needs to go find a new area i mean
0: i guess we are talking about the first week of september
4: yeah you know i mean things are probably starting to happen
0: um it's the best time of the year man Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like it out there yet but uh but things are (laughs) things (laughs) things are definitely starting to happen uh right now all right so fishing is going to start getting better Hunting obviously is here. We're gonna talk about both of these things. Uh, coming up, Greg Hoke is the Prairie Habitat Supervisor with the DNR, we got Greg on the way. We'll talk about emergency hanging, grazing, and some other information about prairie chickens and sharptails and woodcock and more. And Joe Henry's got a Lake of the Woods report all coming up here on Sporting Journal Radio. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. Devils Lake is legendary, and this summer has been legendary for walleyes. Don't miss out. Call Hay Bale Heights Campground and Resort today to book one of their modern cabins on East Bay. The cabins are furnished with a full bathroom, kitchen, and all the amenities like high-speed internet and are clean following CDC guidelines. Staying at Hay Bale Heights gives you full access to a private boat launch, fish cleaning station, and beach area. Learn more at haybaleheights.com. That's haybaleheights.com. Plan your trip to legendary Devils Lake today. All right, this is Sporting Journal Radio. I'm Brett Amundson. Thanks for watching or listening to the show wherever you are right now. Our guest is Joe Henry from Lake of the Woods Tourism. Joe, how you doing, man? Hey guys, I'm doing good. How are you guys? <laughs> I'm doing well. You whisper almost. Oh it's it's whispering, Joe Henry, a little bit there almost. I know you're uh, you're out and about conducting some business right now on location. What what's going on up at Lake of the Woods right now, Joe?
2: Well, tell you what, it's uh, it's transition time. You know, it's September and, you know, we've had such warm weather that everything is still kind of in that summer mode. So we're, we're, you know, like I just did the fishing report, bringing lots of nice coolers, walleyes in, we're getting some big walleyes, but I'll tell you what, it's still that summer mode and it's uh, it's pulling spinners, it's pulling crankbaits. Um, fishing's been good overall, but boy, I tell you, you still gotta find those fish. And once you find them, it's never a slam dunk. You still gotta make them bite. and you know, uh, that's kind well, of you, you. Dial in your spinner colors. You dial in your speed. You figure out what's the color crankbaits, and, and 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 then you move. You know, if you're on fish and those fish aren't rolling, you got to make a decision at some point in time. Let's go fish another school of fish that might be more active. And uh, you know, if you're a little bit versatile like that and do that, it's uh, it's a win. I should tell you, we were fishing. Uh, uh, recently, I was up there on a charter boat, and we were fishing uh, a big flat, and there was other boats with us, and. We were drifting this big, big flat, and those fish were scattered, and we were just drifting spinners, you know? And, and we'd pick one here, we'd pick one there, and well, I tell you what, by the time you put in a few drifts, your, your cooler's looking pretty darn healthy. But it wasn't a slam dunk. It wasn't like whack, whack, whack. It was like, ooh, we got one now, and you know, 10 minutes later, somebody else would catch one, and 15 minutes later, somebody else would catch one. and But then you just feel, start filling the cooler. And uh, um, when, we, when those fish kind of let up a little bit, it wasn't that great we decided, hey, let's go jumping around to a few different spots. So we went rock hopping. We went to some different structure. And boy, in one of the spots we stopped, geez, we've got a smallmouth bass. We've got a couple jumble purge. You know, we got a, a nice wall and a nice auger. And then there wasn't much there. We go to the next rock. And boom, we catch three more fish. I mean, it's just, we're kind of putting together a day. And I think that's what you need to do.
0: You know, one of those pictures that Dan put up there on the screen a little bit ago is a big pike. And that, that almost looked like it was a, big pike out in the middle of the lake like how often how often are you bumping in you know you occasionally bump into a perch or a tulipy or some other bycatch but how often do people catch one of those out there
2: oh it happens a lot it happens a lot and you know a lot of those big pike i mean we don't get as many muskies once in a while we'll get a muskie out there but there are a lot of big pike that live in that basin. and think about it they are targeting oh, food. small they're yeah. targeting those small uh saugers and those small walleyes and uh I'll tell you what, I mean, they're, they're out there for sure, especially when you're pulling cranks. When I mean, you get them on spinners, when you're pulling crankbaits, boy, I'll tell you what, it can be lights out.
0: So I know everybody's uh, just anxiously awaiting the fall shiner run. That
2: hasn't started yet? No, but I'll tell you, you know, I just, so right now we still kind of saw the summer weather, but you got to remember, part of that whole transition is water temperature, but the other part of that is length of day. So, our days, that's consistent, right? The length of day is consistent. We know that's getting shorter. It's just the water temp that, and now with, our, with looking at the temperatures and in the in the forecast, it's going to start getting chillier. So, you know, everything's going to start kicking in. What happens a lot of times is mid September is when all of a sudden you hear, oh, so and so is fishing the river and they whack them. And, oh, yeah, somebody got some shiners off the end of their dock and their nets this week. And, you know, it, it'll all start. And when, A lot of times when it starts, it's like, oh, darn it, I should have fished the river last week, you know, but uh, uh, but but it it will be happening uh, uh, in the very near future. It it does every year. It does every year. And and the cool thing about it is, you know, I just fished the river. There's already fish in the river and uh, it's only going to get better.
0: You know, it's so similar when you think about like the waterfall migration and in, in a sense, it's a migration of fish. But. You know people talk about weather events pushing birds and hunting pressure pushing birds and while that does have an effect that length of day plays the largest role in in migrating waterfowl so i'm
2: not surprised that the same thing happens with a fish like that joe exactly exactly right and you know mother nature i mean mother nature mother nature is very complex and and you know those fish have typical movements typical patterns but when we say typical you you know there's things that aren't typical Last year we had a record-breaking flooding in the area, and more water got pushed through that lake than has in almost history. That wasn't typical. So how is the lake bouncing back from that? Um, is there more forage that got pushed north? Our, we feel like our basin's starting to get better fishing, um, you know, over the last year. That's non typical. Things are always changing, right? We had really low water this year as a rule compared to last year was record-breaking high water. Every year is different. And you just have to kind of roll the punches knowing that those traditions are there for a reason. Those traditions are there because they've happened year after year after year. How strong will the shiners run? How strong will the run of walleyes be chasing them up that river this year? Uh, Time will tell.
0: So, and we can talk more about this in the next couple of weeks, but when those fish start running in the river, are you going out there with a jig and a minnow? Is that going to be your first approach?
2: For myself personally, um, my first approach, if, if the water's warm enough, I might pull, still pull a spinner or I might pull a crankbait to find those fish. Now, if I know where those fish are, if I'm marking those fish on my electronics, you know, pre- pretty readily with a lot of hooks, well, then I am going to start jigging them. You know, when that water starts getting chillier, that jig bite starts kicking in pretty darn good. And that's the main way most people are catching walleyes on the rainy river in the fall is jigging. But I'll tell you what, don't ever us underestimate the power of trolling a crankbait. Brett, you and I have pulled cranks oh, in yeah. the spring of the year in that cold water. Mm-hmm. And you think about it, people say, well, gosh, is it too cold of water to pull crankbaits? No. I don't think it's ever too cold of water. You think about it, I mean, fish fish are always eating minnows. You just adjust your speed, you adjust the size of your crank, and and, but no, I think that, uh, man, I, if, 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 I'm, if I'm struggling jigging because I'm not finding fish, those fish are spread out, no problem put on a crankbait.
0: Well, that's just it. You're just covering more and more water. All right, well, it's that time of year The some cast and blast opportunities are, are starting to happen up at Lake of the Woods. We're gonna talk more about those opportunities next week
2: with Joe Henry. And if they want to plan a trip for this fall to Lake of the Woods, what should they do? Fishing's typically really good, both lake and river, you guys. And uh, hey, check out our website, that is lakeofthewoodsmn.com.
0: Northern Minnesota's Walleye Factory is a year-round world-class fishing destination. The perfect getaway this summer is just a short drive to Lake of the Woods. Fish Big Traverse Bay, the Rainy River, or visit the unique Northwest Angle. To catch big fish, you have to go where the big fish are. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at LakeoftheWoodsMN.com. That's LakeoftheWoodsMN.com. Live Target, the leader and Match the Hatch, is back with new lures that also match the action. Introducing the Live Craw. The Live Craw is irresistible to bass, walleye, and other freshwater species. f winner the Ultimate Frog looks and acts just like a swimming frog. With an exposed ultra-point mustad hook and replaceable legs, the Ultimate Frog has two styles, two sizes, and eight colors. And iCast and F-Tech's winner the Live Shrimp mimics a fleeing shrimp for saltwater anglers. Coming soon! From Live Target. Did you know there are more than 1000 lakes in Ottertail County? Yep, and I'm going to fish as many as I can. I'm an outdoorsy otter. Nothing beats a full day of fishing for me. The lakes of Ottertail County give me plenty of options to lower my boat and snag the perfect catch. Not an outdoorsy otter? No problem. Ottertail County has something for everyone. You just need to find your inner otter. To find your inner otter, go to country.com This is Sporting Journal Radio. Thanks for tuning in on the network by demand, sportingjournalradio.com. Or maybe you're watching this on YouTube. Thank you very much. Please uh, like and share this with your friends and comment below if you have a comment or a question about a topic that we're talking about, because that's how we do things around here a lot of times is we wanna we bring up topics that our listeners care about. So what, last week or whatever it was, two weeks ago, we had uh, somebody brought up uh, a, a video that was going around on social media. And it was uh, somebody that was on a WMA and it was had new cattle fencing up around it. They had cattle on it that were grazing. And he was upset because, hey, we're paying for this public land to go hunting on. What the heck is going on here? And we made the comment that that happens a lot. You know, there's some grazing uh, opportunities out there for farmers and ranchers on some public land. There is some emergency hanging operations that take place, and then we had a couple comments about people saying we, we weren't experts on the on the matter. And no, and I we're not. We, we're not yeah, exactly. We're, we're just hunters, kind of talking about it. And obviously, we've known about emergency hanging and grazing for a while. And he's like, oh, it's not emergency grazing, man. You do you got you know? It's just like it's just perfect internet. Like the way the internet works now, if somebody thinks you're an idiot, they have no problem telling you, (laughs) hiding behind a keyboard. So anyway, I thought, well, let's, you know what? Fine, we'll get an expert on, and we'll break this down a little bit and find out what's going on out there uh, when it comes to uh, hanging and grazing on, on some public lands, also in some CRP, and wh- wherever Greg Hoke's wheelhouse is, we'll find out. And he is the Prairie Habitat Supervisor at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Greg, I'm not trying to put you on the spot at all, Greg. I just want to kind of clarify a, a few things out there. So I appreciate you coming on the show with us this week.
1: Yeah, thanks for the invite.
0: Um, yeah you bet you're also uh author of four books that we'll talk about and uh, we're gonna get into some some uh some some bird talk too with them when it comes to prairie chickens and and woodcock and some of the, and even we could talk wa- uh, waterfowl too with wood ducks it's a subject of a few of your books out there and we'll get into that a little bit more but if you can break down you know when when people throw around the term emergency hang and grazing What what does that mean for people that maybe aren't experts like ourselves, what does that mean exactly?
1: So generally when we talk about emergency grazing or haying, and it's usually haying, um, it's usually in a a drought situation. Um, So for instance, in 2021, when we had the really serious drought, um, the Minnesota Department of Agriculture set up weekly meetings Um, with a bunch of federal state agencies, uh, grazing organizations, um, et cetera, et cetera, just so that we could kind of plan and coordinate um, who's doing what, where the need was, how we could collectively, um, among all the agencies, state and federal, shuffle resources. Um, Generally, most of the, when you talk about emergency haying and grazing, it's quite often more focused on um, things like uh, conservation reserve program fields, uh, to a much lesser extent, public lands like wildlife management areas. Um, however, um, there are opportunities um, created um, by things like this. That sounds kind of negative, but um, try to make the make the best of a situation. Um, so, for instance. Um, there are a number of areas we've been in a wet cycle for quite a few years. Um, it's so wet in the spring that we can't get fire into a lot of places with our prescribed fire program, can't get equipment in there to manage. Um, however, with that drought, um, a lot of our wetlands dried up and the science shows that's actually good for wetlands in, in the long run. We were able to get some, get some hay in there, get some just some basic disturbances onto acres that had seen very little management for, for quite a few years. Um, and I do wanna emphasize um, that our public lands in Minnesota um, are in no way, shape or form a pressure valve um, for, for anybody, um, ranchers, etc. cetera. Um, we made the offer. Um, if ranchers wanted to contact their local area wildlife manager um, and have a discussion, um, if that manager had some land that he or she wanted to have hayed um, to help meet a specific management objective, then they they started working together. Um, however, there was no you know mandate or anything like that that um, you know thou shalt um, allow grazing or haying on on the WMAs in your work area. Um it was still totally up to the area manager and, It was only allowed, um, just like our our regular haying and grazing, um, only allowed if it helped the DNR and DNR staff meet specific management objectives um, for our habitat and wildlife.
0: So in that particular one that, and you don't know about this specific case, but in that particular situation, it could have been a WMA that maybe was too wet to be managed effectively and this spring it was really wet i mean we had a lot of water record wet yeah Yeah. this this spring a lot of guys maybe it was uh maybe it was scheduled to be burned this year and you couldn't get in there to burn it so once it started to dry up the opportunity to put cattle in there uh, for a disturbance by grazing uh, became an option and that may have been what happened here
1: that that could have been one case um it could have also been something along the lines of we had a multi-year grazing program um, or plan set up for that particular unit. Um, And that may be, you know, put cattle on for a year, rest it for a year, put cattle back on for a year, or, you know, put them in the southwest corner in one year and the northeast corner in the next year. Um, Some, yeah, rotate them around. So yeah, they may have been new quote unquote um, this year, uh, but they may have been, and probably probably likely we're part of a
0: longer-term uh, management plan at that site. So is that, if, if that happens uh, on a specific WMA, I know a couple of the comments we got was, yeah, but it's not just one year. I've seen cows out here multiple years or, or whatever, or, or people fall back. It's a crutch they use. And then all of a sudden, there's just they're doing it all the time on these public lands. If if a, If they enter into some sort of grazing, conservation grazing type situation, how often... I mean, can they can they have them there every year? They just have to rotate them around the property or when you said every other year, is that something where they can come back every other year on the on the entire piece or is that differ per property?
1: It it is literally going to be different for every property uh, because none of our WMAs are identical to any other and what we try to do is customize um the the grazing or the haying to the particular site and to the particular needs at that site. Um, As a general rule of thumb, um, we like to hit things fairly lightly, still leave plenty of cover. Um, However, there may be cases where we wanna go in and really hammer a site. Um, For instance, we may wanna graze an area down really heavily if it's, for instance, um, dominated by brome. And what we're trying to do there is really impact that brome, really knock it back hard, and then we're gonna come back in next year or the following year and seed that area down with a really diverse mix of native grasses and wildflowers. Um, I've also seen cases where we came in, um, we or the Fish and Wildlife Service or the Nature Conservancy um, came in, hit an area pretty hard specifically because we wanted to do a tree removal project um, on that site. And we didn't want to be missing all the little seedlings and saplings and things like that, and it just made it easier to get around. So for a brief period of time, come in, hit it pretty hard, which then makes it easier for us to do the ultimate management plan that we're working on, the tree removal, um, and then obviously, you know, pull the animals off um, really quickly. so again, um, every management plan is a little different because the site needs at every at every WMA are a little different.
0: And I know it can be frustrating as a hunter, especially if it was a piece that you really liked and and uh, spent a lot of time there or maybe it was close to your home or something and, and it can be frustrating when you go there to see that it's not it's off limits, you know, it's not gonna be an option this year for whatever the case may be uh but when it comes so when that situation happens and maybe they're only using a quarter of the section or a quarter of the property or whatever the case may be just a part of it hunting is still allowed on that property right and then and and then how how does that work
1: yeah absolutely um and we always try to get the cattle off um before before the hunting season starts there may be the never say never, there could be an occasion where they're out there later for, again, to meet some some need. Um, but yeah, we generally try to get them off so that, yeah, cattle aren't interfering with with hunters, with dogs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I also relate it to like a, a, a spring prescribed fire. Um, the year of the fire, it's not that great for nesting habitat because all the cover's gone um however it's going to be great brood rearing habitat uh for pheasants um later in the summer and in following years it's going to be fantastic nesting habitat um so there are cases where you know it may not look great this year um but we're managing for future years um there'd be the analogy of like doing a drawdown on a wetland um isn't going to make for great hunting, duck hunting this fall, but once we reflood that wetland um, in the future years, it's going to be fantastic hmm. duck hunting.
0: Oh, we've seen um, that out in a few places. Yeah, It's, you know, it, and you're, oh, you're spot on, Greg. And I I don't mean to interrupt you, but you we've seen it happen. You know we've been around this enough to see it happen where it is frustrating when it's happening for a guy and maybe he's only a weekender that only has a short time and maybe he drove long ways and he get to a spot I mean that's why we talk about scouting so much scouting is so important and not just for waterfowl uh, but scouting is so important uh, when it comes to hunting especially if you're putting a, a, a lot of time and effort into a short window um, but you know I've seen even around where I live there was uh, some pretty big habitat improvement projects going on where there was some heavy equipment rolling through some grass yeah. and cattails and just building roads through it all. And a year later, you, you can't even tell that those roads were there. Like the habitat came back, the habitat came back bigger and better and thicker and uh, there's wildlife all over the place. So um, it can be frustrating in the moment, but in the long run, it, it's definitely for the better, uh, done right, of course. And and one other quick question about that type of situation, grazing, whether it's uh, so there there is something, there is emergency grazing like that is an actual thing, right?
1: Um. Y- yes, and th- and there are a couple of different triggers. Um, those are generally more um, kind of in the area of the Minnesota Department of Agriculture, uh, the Farm sure. Service Agency, NRCs. Um, yeah, we don't get super involved in that. Um, again, unless there's a case where we've got a producer nearby and he or she could help us, um, you know, we're we're more than more than willing to talk. But um, so most yeah, that, of the usually, oh, go ahead.
0: Sorry. I'm sorry. So most of the emergency uh, grazing would take place maybe on uh, on a on a private land, like an easement, like CRP. Yeah. Um, uh, but so that so if there's grazing on a wma or some public land that's most likely a conservational grazing contract then or situation
1: yeah and i don't have any numbers for you as far as percentages and things like that um the the issue with with like an emergency grazing is we still need to write a grazing plan we need to get fencing up we need to get water taken care of that 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 can take a period of time Um, that does not lend itself well to an emergency Um, however, we can, um, get a map out, um, talk to a producer, literally draw a line and say, you know, if you could, hay, you know, within this area on this WMA, it would help us out. Um, and they can get their hay cutting equipment out there. They can get those bales off quickly. Um, so yeah, it it can happen. Um, but yeah, emergency "Quote unquote," I don't, not even sure I like that term. Right. Um, haying is going to be more prevalent than yeah any sort of grazing on a WMA.
0: When and and we'll move on from the grazing portion, but I, I just have one more question about that, or two more questions, I guess. And uh, one of the topics that came up about it was who pays for all that fencing and who puts that all in. Is that then uh, is that the rancher, the farmer putting all that up, maybe in conjunction? with uh, the DNR or, you know, where does, how does money fit into this situation?
1: Yeah. And again, every site's a little different. Um, In some cases we are putting the fence up. Um, Those are probably on the rarer side. Um, What we'll often do in many cases is we'll put in like corner posts um, to make it easier um, for the producers. Um, And then especially the people who are doing a lot of rotational grazing, things like that, they can get that fence put up and taken down. Um, You know, they've got reels on the back of their ATVs. They've got temporary fence posts. Um, They can put one or two lines of hot wire up or just even just smooth, high tensile. They can get that fencing up and down pretty efficiently and pretty quickly. Um, And so quite often it's the, the, the producer or the whoever owns the cattle is, is taking care of that. But again, every site is gonna be different and I don't have any specific acres, linear feet or, or dollar sure. numbers for you.
0: Okay, because the other, the other question that comes up then is does that fence stay up or does it come down? And it sounds like most of the time it comes down. And then the, the type of fence, you know, and I know this isn't your uh, wheelhouse, but there's a WPA that I know of that I used to hunt a lot. And one year I drove by it and it had four strands of barbed wire and big cattle gates all up, all around it. And, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, okay, I understand doing some rotational grazing for a habitat disturbance, but to put four strands of barbed wire around a pheasant hunting track, you know, barbed wire to me as a guy with, with running labs and flushers, that's the enemy. And I understand letting the letting the farmer or rancher get in there if he needs to be, but I, I you know I want to push for pulling barbed wire out of all public lands as much as possible. So, is there from you know from a from a managing agency standpoint? And I know we'll go back to WMAs here. Is there any sort of requirements when it comes to type of fencing out there?
1: Uh, yeah, again, we, we do, we do have some fencing standards. Um, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprised to hear about the barbed wire. Yeah. Um, there may have been some very specific reason for that, that I I don't know and can't address for the most part. We're doing almost entirely, um, high tensile smooth fence. Um, yeah, dogs can go right through it. Um, you know, and, and quite often it's just, it's taken down at the end of the year, I know one of the first things we often do when we do um, public land acquisitions is, yeah, we go in there and rip all that rusty barbed wire and it's half buried in the ground. And <laughs> yeah, that's it's part fun. of uh, you know, <laughs> part of what we do uh, before we even open open it to the public.
0: Sure. No, that's great. That's great. Um, uh, that barbed wire is just so damaging, can be so damaging to people, too. Uh, and, and my hunting a, pants I've ripped a lot of boots yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly
1: I've, I've I've gone to the vet one yeah more yeah at least at least once for for that reason and yeah oh, a couple man. couple of pairs of expensive waders myself so
0: oh yeah the waders <laughs> it's like they they're magnets for barbed wire it seems like um well let's talk a little bit about what, the like disturbance in that habitat and how it can be good uh, and this isn't exactly wasn't on topic but you brought it up and I think I had I think it was Tom Landwehr was on the show one time, and he brought up the fact that going through a dry cycle can be good for wetlands. And, you know, what is it? Because people get so worried, oh, man, it's so dry this year. Gosh, the the ponds are all dried up. And, of course, we're looking at it as a, as a you know, from the standpoint of a hunter saying, I'm not going to be able to hunt that pond this year, or it's going to be just straight two feet of mud that I'm going to be walking through, and the dogs are going to be miserable. Uh, but when you talk it may you know, and I don't know if this is in your, your again wheelhouse But can you talk a little bit about the benefits of a wetland drying up like that?
1: Yeah, I, I can dabble in that we do have some wetland experts in Minnesota yeah, or in, in the sure. DNR that you could, you could bring on Basically and you, you may have heard about the, the wetland cycle and the, the, the hemi marsh phase um, One of the issues in like I said, we, we've been in pretty much of a wet cycle since 93 94 uh we kind of had a dry year and was it 20 2012 2013 somewhere in there and then 21 we have a lot of wetlands that are kind of stuck in that kind of that end phase where it's you know heavily encroached by cattails it's it's not terribly productive um it's just been too waterlogged for too long And, and that sounds totally counterintuitive but wetlands can be too wet um where if you dry them out, um, you expose that seed bank um, that, you know, either on the surface of the mud or, or buried just below it. And you're, you're basically resetting um, the wetland is what we call it in that in that cycle. Um, and that's why we, you know, some of our larger wetlands on, on both state and federal lands have water control structures, So even in a wet year, we can let all the water out um, and then put the, the boards back in and, and back the water back in. Um, but yeah, it's it's just part of the cycle, you know. In the perfect world, um, from from a duck perspective, and and probably from a duck hunter perspective, you like that hemi, what they call the hemi marsh stage, where it's about fifty percent emergent vegetation, fifty percent open water, and preferably, you know, you know patches of of emergent vegetation scattered throughout. It's not the east half is emergent vegetation and the west half is is open vegetation. Um, You you want that real patchy nature because lots and lots of places for ducks to hide, especially broods of ducks, lots of uh, invertebrates in those types of wetlands. So lots of food down in there. And um, so, yeah, just kind of trying to. Yeah, there's there's some good pictures of that kind of that that hemi marsh or or middle stage that we quite often try to manage for
0: Well, let's get back into your, your area of expertise and talk about the prairie a little bit. Um, Minnesota's had this prairie conservation plan uh, for a number of years now. And uh, talking about particularly the western side of Minnesota, pretty much from top to bottom. I really like it because I love the prairie. Uh, I love living out here in western Minnesota. Where where are we at um, in that plan? Like, what's the status? And how are things going with that?
1: Um. Yeah, we we, uh, we we still meet as a group um, se- several times a year. Um, the the plan is, um, you know, there, there, there can be some misunderstanding about our state plans. It, it, it is very much an umbrella plan. Um, sure. It has some very broad based goals. Um, we still do a lot of work. Um, you know, kind of the day to day stuff is, you know, who happens to come into the office and say, you know, hey, I'm interested in selling my land and and leaving a conservation legacy, um, that sort of thing. Um, You know, where we target a lot of our uh, management, especially, um, the Prairie Plan is focused on kind of these core areas where we've got both clusters of remaining native prairie, as well as usually clusters of state and federal public lands. Um, So, you know, those are gonna be some of the best places, um, at least in my opinion, um for bo- both your pheasant, your upland pheasant hunting and for your waterfowl hunting because that's where you're going to find the, the biggest blocks of, of habitat out there
0: well i i remember being at a uh, a prairie chicken event and i think we were filming for prairie Sportsmen and running into you there how how are the prairie chickens looking nowadays have you been out there uh have you been uh, around the, the chickens much lately
1: I have not. Yeah. These days I live uh, about halfway between Cambridge and Mora. um, And I can't remember, um, we did publish our, our most recent Prairie Chicken and sharp tail report, not too long ago. And I can't remember what the numbers were. Um, we're generally speaking, holding steady, um, you know, year to year fluctuations, um, as with anything in wildlife, but somewhat steady in recent years, we're still well below there it is um yeah still well below um you know where we were even back in like the you know 2005 to 2010 period Hmm. um which is kind of when crp was at its maximum both in minnesota and and nationally
0: sure yeah but that crp you can really watch the bird numbers the populations just fluctuate with the numbers of uh, crp enrollment um, uh, well, you're, you're over in that Eastern, <clears throat> excuse me, that East central part, uh, how, you know, we closed the, the sharp tail season over there. Have, have, have people been seeing more birds? Is that helping? Are they coming back or is it going to be just, a you know, maybe it's, maybe we're too far gone in that part of the state for Sharpies?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know about Sharpies and, you know, like the, the effects of closing the season, you know, those always, it's going to take a couple of years before, before we see any effects, if we do see any. Um, I can tell you the pheasant populations, um, up in this area are, are through the roof. I was out driving around, um, actually doing a lot of racing, um, last week. And there are broods of pheasants all over the place. Oh, good. Um, in the winter, it's not unusual to see 40, 50, a hundred pheasants, um, just, just driving around. So, um, it's, it's an unknown, um, it's a, it's a bit of a secret, but, uh, not there anymore. are anymore. <laughs> there are a lot of prairie chickens over here in this kind of uh
0: transition zone. Oh really? Prairie chickens. Oh, oh really. I'm, so, I'm
1: sorry, pheasants. Pheasant. Oh yes.
0: okay. Lots <laughs>
1: lots of pheasants over here. really? Um, <laughs> I have got not gotten up there, but you know, I've heard Pine County is one of the new hot spots for pheasant oh hunting in recent years.
0: All the Pine um, County so, residents are just got mad at us. Yeah. yeah wow. Well, <laughs> no, that's great, honestly. And, uh, you know, Jared Wickland from Pheasants Forever has been on a lot, and he's talked about that area. In fact, we filmed a pheasant hunt over there uh, as well, just to kind of talk about the fact that you don't. Have to go to western Minnesota and southwest Minnesota to find birds. There are some other places uh, to find pheasants uh, around the state of Minnesota. It's a little different country. It's it's a, actually a really interesting part of the state. I think there in that east central part of Minnesota. There's a lot of wildlife and and some some different habitat there, Greg.
1: Yeah, we've. I mean, there's. I know there's all. You know, there there's not the uh, the huge cornfields. You know, corn corn and soybean fields tend to be a fairly small. Um, lots of grazing, lots of small pastures, and then just lots of brush and wetlands and sloughs and cattails. And um, yeah, there's, there, is a, there is a lot of wildlife in this part of the state.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. We, we don't get over there as often as we do, but uh, every time we go over there, I'm always kind of surprised by something that we see. I remember filming, we filmed a TV show on uh, Grindstone, was that the show we did and there was we drove out there and of course there were sandhill cranes i think we saw pheasants we saw all kinds of crew weren't i don't you know there? why you're
3: looking at me well, you were there i don't think i was weren't you there I don't oh
0: know. no it was me and dylan <laughs> so that's I, right and your dad well we were with your dad that's oh, why Well,
3: I, that's not me <laughs> no, i don't care not. what people say how similar we look it's not me no. I wasn't there just because my dad was.
0: well there. usually when we film with your dad you're there well, that's
3: why I, I, yeah, I wasn't i can't remember it was <laughs> you're so,
0: wrong oh my gosh it was so hot i think the water temperature on grindstone that day was like ninety degrees or something. It was absolutely we spent more time swimming than we did fishing that day. But my point is driving over there that morning we saw a lot of critters along the road. And uh yeah. it you know, for 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 something that with that you know, that close to the Twin Cities, that close to a major metropolitan area to see that much wildlife was uh it was kinda cool. It was neat.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you can be on the you know, you can be on the north side of the cities in about forty five minutes, um, from from this part of the world. So it's it's yeah, I mean, I, I can see, I mean, I've got woodcock galore. I've got rough grouse drumming right outside the bedroom window, and That's you can't cool. drive anywhere without seeing flocks of cranes and, and, and pheasants um, all over the roadside. So it's, it's a fun place. It's a fun part of the state.
0: I won't make you answer this question. I won't put you on the spot about this, but we, we need to start looking at opening up a statewide sandhill crane season. I know that eastern population gets uh, gets hunted in a number of states and it's not going to make everybody happy and that lives in the twin cities i'm sure but uh i would like to see it we're starting to see cranes out here from that from that i'm assuming they're from the eastern population but we're seeing them spread out here into western minnesota too they're coming across the central part of the state they're such cool birds. They're delicious. I think they're just fascinating. I've had a nesting pair the last couple of years right behind my house. Uh, I love the sound waking up like uh, bow hunting in the fall, climbing up in the stand in the morning and oh. then hearing the, hearing the echo go. of that crane call. Um, so cool, so cool. So anyway. I won't make you go down that road, but yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw, yeah, throw. And I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> out of my area of expertise.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate you coming on and talking about all these other things that uh, you know can get people's uh, uh, heart heart rate up just a little bit when it comes to uh, habitat and public lands and things like that. But um, let's talk uh, real quick. We're gonna we're gonna wrap things up. But, but first, let's talk. You have four books. You're an author. You have four books out there now, Greg.
1: Yeah, um, my first book was on prairie chickens, uh, and then I did one on woodcock, um, wood ducks a couple years later, and then just last year, um, yeah, there you go. And just last year, I had a book on on the uh, on just the prairie in general. Um, that uh, I, I apparently haven't I haven't gotten you a copy of that. I will try to take care of that this winter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That's cool. Um, yeah, I mean, and they are just such neat birds, really. When you think about them, I mean, woodcock. Rough grouse, I've always joked that rough grouse are the unofficial state bird of Minnesota, uh, especially when it comes to rough grouse hunters. But I feel like w- when the numbers have fluctuated a little bit, and we had a few years of, of down uh, numbers for rough grouse, it, every grouse hunter became a woodcock hunter. And I feel like the yep. woodcock numbers are, have been doing well, and of course they're migrating through. Uh, but they're, they're pretty neat. They're just, they're strange little birds. I was going to call them neat little birds, but they're kind of strange little birds, aren't they? <laughs>
1: Well, and and they're just like uh, um, I mean they're 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 just like our prairie grouse, our sharpies, and our, and our chickens. Um, I know Tom Carney, um, who writes uh, Upland Almanac, has called them two-season birds because um, mm. they're they're just as, if not more, entertaining in the spring. Um, I know I have usually have two, sometimes three woodcock sky dancing literally in my backyard. Oh, cool! Um, the dog and I can take an evening walk, and we'll hear another five, six, seven just you know, a, a half mile walk down the gravel road. And um, yeah, it's just insanely entertaining to sit out there and watch and listen to those guys in, in and, you know, on April evening.
0: Well, and that it's along the same lines, the, the watching prey chickens on the booming grounds in the spring has definitely become one of my favorite things to do yeah. in the spring. Uh, I don't get to do it as often as I want, but the first time I did it up at Blue Stem and Glendon, like my head exploded uh <laughs> sitting there watching these birds it was yes. so cool it was so much fun to watch and there was you know there was a, like a mink i think ran through the lek while we were there there was deer walking by you know there you, you see everything when you're out there but uh just seeing how those prairie chickens interact and that one of the times we went uh and i was with brian winter and we saw we saw the king of the lek, the one that had the center of the lek had this big he was just this big red patch on his chest much redder and darker than all the other ones and he just he he just had this attitude to him he was the king he was the king and there was all these other males out there trying to attract all these females and they of course they wanted nothing to do with all the other ones they wanted uh what did we call we had a nickname for him i can't remember what we called him now but uh copper maybe that's what brian called him but i he was neat but at the same time in the far back corner there was one he must had a broken leg or something and he was back there hopping around on one foot trying to do his best (laughs) dance he could and we were all rooting for him but uh i don't know it's just it's such a fascinating display and of course that that spot in particular is there's always so many birds there it's a neat one to to go to but um man those spring courtship displays sharp tails prairie chickens they're just such neat displays to see
1: yeah Yep. So, um, yeah. And, and, and there's, there's, yeah, I, I know I've, uh, you know, it's so many questions. I can remember one morning I was out, uh, surveying, they were, they were, the, the chickens were right up against the fence line and there was a red tail hawk sitting mm. on the fence post just feet away and <laughs> nobody cared. Um, and I also remember this was up at Hamden slough national wildlife refuge. Um, I was leading a, a birding tour with the Detroit lakes bird festival and literally three minutes before the bus tour got there a peregrine falcon stooped on the on the on the leck and i mean you're supposed to be out there you know rooting for the prairie chickens But (laughs) that was pretty cool to see um he 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 didn't he didn't get one but it was pretty cool to watch
0: nature interacting man it's like watching the discovery channel in real life i think it's cool and i you know i saw something uh, we were driving around scouting for doves the other day, or I was, I guess, and I, there was like four doves on a power line <clears throat> and a Hawk sitting on the power pole, like three feet away from them. <laughs> just, <laughs> yep. just, just hanging out and it was, uh, it's always cool to see, but all right, Greg, uh, where can we, where can people find your books if they want to purchase one?
1: Uh, they can, yeah, just, just go to amazon.com is probably the, the quickest spot or yeah, they can go
0: to the university of Iowa press. Um, buy them directly there. Very good. Greg Hoke, uh, DNR Prairie Habitat Supervisor. Uh, Good luck with everything this fall. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. Sporting Journal Radio is a division of Macaba LLC. If you've got a question, comment, or story idea for us, send us an email. Go to sportingjournalradio.com. While you're there, you can learn how to advertise on the show and visit our store for hats, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more. Go to sportingjournalradio.com.